Well, good afternoon. It is great to see you all. I hope you've all had a good half term. Those of you who are parents or teachers uh, will know all about that. Um, back to work and school tomorrow. What a shame. Um, but uh, it's good to see you all. We've got a few visitors here today. So uh, it's especially nice to see you. You're very welcome. My name's Ian. I'm the minister of church here. And um, I'm going to be, uh, as you can see, t- doing our main talk today. We, in September, those of you who come to church regularly know that we started a series in the Old Testament book called Judges. Uh, we've reached chapter 6 today. And we're going to begin uh, looking at the story of Gideon. Um, in his commentary on Judges, an American writer, Delros Davis, writes that the book of Judges is so interesting that only people who take tranquilizers before sitting down can doze off while they read it. We've already seen something of the unpredictable plot lines, the romance, the intrigue, the hopes and disappointments. We've seen some bloody battles. Much of the book of Judges reads like the TV series Game of Thrones. I think much of it would make a great film. And it is incredible that such a gory and at times miserable book is included in the word of God for us to reflect upon. We're going to start thinking about the story of a man called Gideon. This is the story of how a reluctant hero smashes the Midianite enemy with 300 men. It's an epic story. I think um, maybe in years gone by, maybe now a little bit less, this has been a staple Sunday school story. I was telling someone, look at the story of Gideon, and someone said to me, it's a boy's story, that, isn't it? This is is, um, an amazing story um, of an unlikely hero. But then again, I was thinking... In our modern culture, there there are many people who who have never been to Sunday school and have maybe never heard of Gideon. And the only Gideon, if if that's you today, the only Gideon maybe you've heard of are are either the cartoon duck, who had a really long neck. Oh man, none of you, really culturally aware chasers, isn't it? No one's heard of Gideon the duck. It's one of my favourite cartoon characters. Well, I never must have had a very sheltered upbringing. Or, or maybe the other Gideons would be those mysterious people who put Bibles in hotel rooms. Um, I, I was watching uh, with Jane, I, I might refer to this later again, the detective show Luther on, on iTunes box set, I think it was on a few years ago. Um, and one of the stories in that, he actually deciphers the crime, solves the crime because it refers to a Gideon Bible in a hotel room and someone had left codes in it. So Gideons, these mysterious people crop up everywhere, leave the Bibles. So anyway, some of you will have heard of Gideon and you'll know this story. Some of you might never have heard of Gideon. So I've got a double chance today. Some of you might nod off because you think you know it all and some of you might nod off because you don't know it at all. So I've kind of got two extremes to pull together and make sure you all stay awake. And uh, hopefully we'll go slow enough so that those of you who've never met Gideon before will be able to identify with him. And hopefully we'll try and go deep enough so that those of you who do know this story 
can maybe learn something fresh that you didn't see before. And if we can achieve that, everyone's a winner. Aren't they? So, that's a good aim. Uh, Gwyneth read to us, Gwyneth's gone now, isn't she? Yeah, sorry. Gwyneth read to us from Romans. We're going to refer to one of the verses she read before, but we're going to read from Gideon, uh, from Judges, about Gideon. It'd be really helpful if you've got a Bible, and uh, if you've got one of these Red Church Bibles, um, you can follow the story here. It's on page 248, um, and it's in Judges chapter 6 we've reached. And what we're going to do today is we'll, we'll break it up into four sections. I've, I've entitled uh, our time together, The Reluctant Warrior. First of all, we'll look at the background a little bit, and then I've got three fairly simple points I want us to think about, and then we'll be done, okay? So what we'll do is we'll read it in four sections, so that we, if we read it all in one go, you'll have forgotten what we've read by the time we get to the last point. So we'll do it as we're going along, okay? So first of all, we're going to read uh, verse 1 to 6. So this is just the background. Um, so let's read God's word together, just verses 1 to 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. I did think about entitling this talk, Where is God when you need him? Because of the sorry and miserable state that Israel, the, the people of God, find themselves in here in these verses. They, they were grim verses, weren't they? These are people who were originally were brought out of slavery in Egypt by Moses to the land God had promised to Abraham many years before. These are God's chosen special people and look at them here living in caves holes in the ground oppressed and terrified every year as soon as the crops start to grow marauding bands come from the surrounding nations as if it was Glastonbury and just camp all over the crops and ruin everything there's no food the Bible says here, like swarms of locusts, they come. They're animals eating everything in sight. Imagine the rubbish they leave behind. The, all the rubbish left behind, they quite literally ravaged the land every year for seven years. 
The Bible says here in verse 6 that the Israelites were impoverished. This wasn't a recession. This is an externally imposed famine. These foreign invaders were sucking the, the life out of the land and out of them. We'll get to Gideon in a minute, but just look ahead with me at what Gideon says in verse uh, 13. But say, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Where is God when you need him? Gideon, that's what Gideon's saying. I thought we were supposed to be God's people. Where on earth is he? I've been living in a cave for the last seven years. I've had nothing to eat for three weeks. Isn't it God's job to look after us? And here we are, frightened and starving. Oh, this is the part where I was going to mention Luther. We were, we were watching the box set of Luther recently. Did I tell you that? And uh, one of the funny things about Luther, it's not a funny programme, but one of the funny things is whenever he comes to the scene of a crime, he, he always comes with his sidekick. And he, looks at, he, he comes with his hands in his pockets and he looks around. And then he looks at his sidekick and he says, something's not right here. And his, and his sidekick's like, what do you mean, what do you mean? And then he kind of proceeds to unpick, you know, what's going on. I think if Luther came to this scene, that's, it, that's Gideon's assessment, isn't it? It's not right. Something is not right here. Where is God when you need him? This whole thing's a mess. I think when it says Midian so impoverished them, I don't think that even just means economically. I think that means mentally, socially, Emotionally, these people are depressed. They're not just impoverished physically, they're impoverished emotionally. These are God's people. So that's the background. And the answer to the question, where is God when you need him, is actually that he is actually right here. What God does in this story is surprising and unexpected there are a whole series of shocks in this narrative so here, here's the way we'll approach it some of you will know that earlier on this year we acquired a second hand caravan we've done a lot of camping over the years getting a bit old to lie on the floor we can't get up again once we get down on the floor we thought we'd upgrade from a tent to a second hand caravan and we wanted to store it at home so we could keep an eye on it. And uh, so the bit, there's a bit of front garden that was all overgrown. It wasn't level. And so Jane and I thought, like, we thought we'd do this in an afternoon. What made us think we could do it in an afternoon? We, I, I, we started digging. And it's, all, it's only a little bit not level. But honestly, we dug all afternoon. And it looked the same as when we started to, to, like get, to get rid of like six inches and level it, it was just unbelievable. So I got online, I thought there's got to be a better way. 
And I found a company that hires little JCB diggers. And I forgot about the caravan then. I, I just was excited to hire a little JCB digger. One man JCB digger. I was so excited. And it came on a lorry. The guy drove it off and then said, there you go, there's the keys. And I had this JCB digger for two days. I was so excited. I called up Richard Proctor, Ian Marriott. They came and helped me. I think they had a go on it as well. I, I'm sorry I didn't take a picture because I would have showed you a picture. It was great fun. But this JCB was amazing because now we could move as much soil as we needed to. It didn't actually take us that long. It was a piece of cake and it was great fun. In this story, I, I want you to think about God being like that JCB. And I want to suggest here in this story, with this background that we've seen, that God is at work to move, not soil, from one place to another, but he's at work to move Gideon and the nation as a whole from where they were to somewhere else. God is like the JCB. These are tough times, but God is not absent. He has not abandoned them. He is actually the prime mover behind the whole story, moving them from one thing to another thing. So, let's uh, read on from verse 7. Well, I'm just, we're just going to think about three ways that God moves them. And the first, the first one, moving from regret to repentance. We'll explain that in a minute. This is verses 7 to 10. So let me read to you again the second part. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. There's a shock here straight away, and I've, I've, I've called this, where's our dinner? In verse 6, we're told that the Israelites cried out to God for help. Seven years, they've been living in caves. There's no McDonald's, they've had nothing to eat. The crops are gone, the cattle are ruined. They cry out to God. And in line with the previous chapters in Judges, what you expect to happen is for God to send a deliverer, don't you? That's what he did before. The people cry out, God sends a saviour. That's the pattern. But here, God doesn't send relief. He sends a preacher. It's taken them seven years to get around to talking to God. And when they do, he doesn't send them food. He sends them a sermon. They're like, where's our dinner? God, help us! And instead of sending them meals on wheels, he sends them a man with a sermon. It's like breaking down in your car in the middle of the night and calling the AA or the RAC and they send a professor of philosophy to talk you to death instead of a man with some spanners. 
I want someone to fix my car. Well, let's just have a little chat. Listen, the problem here for the Israelites is that they're very sorry that they're oppressed. They're very sorry that they've got no food. But they don't understand why. So God sends them a prophet to remind them of some true things. I already rescued you from Egypt. I promised that I would be your God. I told you not to worship the pretend gods of the nations in this land where you now live who can't really help you. And you know what? It went in one ear and out the other ear. Verse 10, God says, the prophet says to them, but you have not listened to me. We've had a clue in verse 1 already. Did you get the shock of verse 1 even? The writer of Judges says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. The whole reason for this sorry mess is not that God was absent, but, but that their hearts were all over the place. Idolatry, immorality, paganism, the people forgot God and did evil in God's eyes. All the while, God is there, but they were, they, they've forgotten him. And from God's perspective, this is a sorry mess, but what these people need is something more than immediate relief. What they need to know, first of all, is why. They need to understand that God has done this because they're not listening the people are desperate but God isn't finished with them they want food what God wants is their hearts you'll notice that I entitled this section moving from regret to repentance the reason God sends a prophet to talk to them first is because they're sorry that they're hating but they're not yet sorry about hating God. You get that? They're, they're very sorry about the consequences of what they've done, but they're not yet in a place where they understand what they've done to God. They're sad. I suppose we might say, you know, so, sometimes people say, oh, I'm really sorry. And inside you're thinking, yeah, you're only sorry you got caught. You're not actually sorry about what you've done. You're just sorry someone caught you doing it. It's a little bit like that here, isn't it? They're, they're, they're not sorry that their relationship with God lies in ruins. They're more sorry about what they haven't got. God, help us! 
God is right there, but he's saying, hang on a minute, before I help you, I want you to understand something. There's a very interesting verse in the New Testament that sheds some light on this. And it, some of you take notes, if you're taking notes, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll read it to you, verse 10. And Paul writes there, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. When we are out of sorts with God, we can feel very sorry about the consequences, but what's needed is repentance. The great example of this is at the end of Jesus' life, two friends, one was called Judas, one was called Peter. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Judas knew what it was to feel sorry in the sense of regret. He went out and hung himself. Peter, though, knew what it meant to repent. And he was reconciled. One of them had regret, the other had repentance. There's a difference between the two. These people here at this point are full of regret, but they're not yet concerned about God. They're sorry they've lost stuff, but they're not sorry that they've lost God. And in the end, that's the greatest tragedy of human existence, isn't it? To lose God. Actually, the truth is, if we had everything we could ever wish for, and did not have God that would be a tragedy Jesus said it didn't he what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul if you had your wildest dreams fulfilled and God is not part of that picture you will be poor not rich God wants them but they want something else it's, it's kind of sad isn't it maybe this afternoon you're wondering where God is well maybe maybe I don't know there's all kinds of reasons why things can go wrong but maybe he is gently trying to move you from being sorry about it whatever it might be to being sorry about him Maybe. Something to think about. That's shock number one. Hey, we need to wrap on here. Shock number two. A sermon with no punchline. There's another shock here. Do you, do, does anyone remember that programme on TV, A Question of Sport? That One of my favourite rounds in that is the What Happened Next round. You know that round where they show you something happening and then they say, freeze frame, and they have to guess what happened next. If, if the Bible stopped at verse 10 and we were playing what happened next, what would you expect to happen? This prophet comes along, they cry to God for help, the prophet comes along and says, you've all made a dog's breakfast of it, you haven't listened to God, freeze frame, what happens next? I mean, you, you kind of expect that God's judgment is going to fall, don't you? The prophet comes and says, you've got it all wrong, but this sermon doesn't have a punchline. The very next verse 
God comes to Gideon and begins to raise him up as their deliverer. Just when you think the end is coming, just when you think we're all doomed, judgment's going to come, God is at work raising up a saviour. God rescue, he's, he's beginning to rescue them even though they haven't yet got to the point of repentance. It's not like God's waiting in the next room, rocking on a rocking chair, waiting for them to come up to scratch next door. He sends the prophet to tell them what we've done wrong, but he's already at work. This is the story of the whole Bible right here. Here's what you could, here's what you could have wanted. No, that's not right. That's quick shows, isn't it? The, the Bible story. Here's what you should have done. That's right. Here's what you should have done. Then God says, now I want you to understand that I love you even though you haven't done it. And I will give you everything that you need so that you can come up to scratch. That's why I asked Gwyneth to read Romans chapter 5. The New Testament sums it up when it says, in this God demonstrates his love for us. While we we were still sinners. Christ died for us. In other words, Christ wasn't waiting for us to come up to scratch before he died for us. Do you get that? While we were still sinners. In this, God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In a strange way, when we realise that God loves us freely, it sets us free to do the very things he's asking us to do. These people now are ready for grace. I, I think one of the most amazing things to experience in life is the dawning sense that somehow we have not lost God. We, we deserve to have lost him. And yet he's still there, loving us. We begin to realise that we don't deserve him. Our sins have driven him away. These people have lived as if God wasn't even there. They thought they'd lost him. They thought judgment was about to fall. And now they find that he is still theirs after all. And this is how God is, isn't it? God comes to us and he, he, he convicts us. He's like a doctor. He, he, he comes to us and he says, here's what's wrong and here's the, the cure. He convicts them and then he saves them. I, I, I think this is a God that you couldn't make up. This, this is a God who is both serious and uncompromising in his judgment and yet at the same time full of compassion and moved to save them and deliver them. One of our problems in life is that often what we tend to do is run to one of two extremes about God. We either think that God is really strict and a bit mean or we think he's like Father Christmas. 
who just laughs at everything with a kindly tolerance like your granddad would. We, that's how we think about God, isn't it? He's either super judgmental and completely unloving, or he's super loving and wouldn't judge anyone. Actually, the truth is that God is both holy and truthful and merciful and compassionate. You couldn't make up a God like that. He isn't one or the other. In the end, it all points to the cross where Jesus died. Jesus came to die for our sins because they're really bad. If there was another way for people to be forgiven and saved, God would have found it. Jesus comes to die in our place because our sins are bad. And yet, Jesus comes to die for our sins because he loves us. At the cross, God's justice was expressed as the punishment for our sins falls on Christ. And yet, at the same time, God's amazing love was expressed because he can now forgive us completely, freely. His love did not overcome his justice as though love is good and justice is bad. Rather, his good love completely satisfied his good justice. Does that make sense? Actually, in the end, it is this very kindness of God that leads us from pointless regret to fruitful repentance. It even says in the New Testament that Jesus has ascended to the highest throne in order to give repentance. The very job that Jesus does is to come to us in his grace and help us to see our sins for what they really are so that we'll come to him rather than running away from him. So here's God in this narrative, first of all, moving a nation from pointless regret towards fruitful repentance. Do you get that? Here's number two. Moving from cynicism to confidence. We're going to read from verse 11 down to verse 24. This is quite a long section, or a longer section. So let's think about this secondly. He's a right character, Gideon. See whether you like him. So read this. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have 
and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I'll be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I'll wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in the pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place it on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he, he exclaimed, Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Gideon was perhaps the most unlikely candidate to save Israel his faith is weak his courage is small he actually embodies the emotional impoverishment and defeatism of the whole nation and yet here is God coming to him and moving him from cynicism to confidence God moves him from an attitude of giving up to an attitude of getting on with it. Do you get that? Do we need that? I, I do. How easily we give up and don't do the things we should do. How easily we get distracted, diverted, overwhelmed. It's too hard. I'm too weak. Poor me. Others might have been able to do it, but I can't. Oh, if only you knew. I can't do it. God comes to him and moves him from cynicism to confidence. I say God moved him on because it's very interesting here. The Bible here talks about the angel of the Lord. But when you read the conversation... I mean, verse 16, the Lord answered. End of verse 18, the Lord said. It, I think that phrase, the angel of the Lord, this is, this is what theologians call a theophany. This is like, this is God appearing in a human form to a person in the Old Testament. 
many commentators think this is you know that Jesus didn't begin when he was born in Bethlehem the son of God is eternally existed forever he became human when he was born in Bethlehem but some commentators believe that there are many times in the Old Testament where God the son appears in human form to people this may be one of those occasions it's interesting that it keeps saying God said, God said, God answered it seems to be more than an angel God the son appearing to Gideon anyway it's a miserable scene again here's Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press I don't want you to ignore that a wine press is an old fashioned thing two massive holes in the floor one of them higher than the other the idea is you took all the grapes in the higher one and then you jump in with no shoes on and you walk around smashing all the grapes up and the juice flows down into the lower vat and collects there so they can make wine with it that's how they did it they didn't have machines someone's job would be to get purple feet as they run about trampling all the grapes but Gideon's not making wine here it says he's threshing wheat in a wine press a wine press is virtually underground but when you're threshing wheat what you need is wind and freedom when they were threshing wheat they'd cut all the corn and then they'd go on the top of a hill on a windy day and they'd lob the whole thing up in the air and the bits of straw that they didn't want the wind would blow away and the heavier kernels would drop down and that's how they separated them nowadays we'd go on the top of Boston Castle to, to, to thresh wheat that's what threshing is throw it up in the air and the wind does the separating I mean Gideon must be so fed up here he's underground basically in a wine press throwing his wheat up in the air nothing happens how, I mean is he, is he individually separating that's a straw that's a kernel there's no wind I'll have to do it myself how long did it take him it's a miserable scene there's no wine where is God when you need him Gideon's sitting there saying oh to be up on the hills with the wind in my face and here I am cowering in a wine press and then God himself comes and sits down next to him and says hello Rambo <laughs> the Lord turned to him and said the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon must have gone, is someone else here? Is it, is it, is it my brother? Hello, Rambo, you're the man. Gideon must have been looking over his shoulder thinking, who, me? In verse 14, God says to him, go in the strength you have and save Israel from Midian's hand and Gideon's like who me? how can I save Israel? my clan is the weakest in Manasseh stop making our cakes and I'm the least in my family and then God simply says to him in verse 16 five words I will be 
with you. He can't save Israel in his own strength. But he can save Israel using his strength, knowing that God is sending him and is with him. That is quite brilliant, isn't it? God is not quite saying, Gideon, I'll do it for you. God seems to say, you're going to do it because I'm going to be with you. One writer I came across suggests that this is always God's trump card. This is God's trump card. Whatever excuses and delays we might come up with to God when he asks us to do something, God answers them all by saying five words. I'll be with you. Every excuse we can think of evaporates when God says that, doesn't it? Go in the strength you have and do what I'm asking you to do. I can't do it. You can. I'll be with you. That is confidence inducing, isn't it? There's nothing else that we can add to that. And it's a massive clue to how life works for a Christian believer. Did I have a slide this on? I can't remember. Oh, we've done that. Yes, commands and promises. Here's a thing for you to think about. If you are going to obey God's commands, the only way you can do that is by believing his promises. Isn't that true? Actually, I want to spin that around and say, often in our lives, the reason we don't obey God's commands is because we don't believe him. Go in the strength you have and I will be with you. You can do it, Gideon. You can do it, Rambo. I'll be with you. God always gives commands and promises. You have to believe the promises in order to obey the commands. Well, Gideon's beginning to wake up a little bit now. He realises no one else is there. God's talking to him. And he asked the Lord to stay put while he goes off and makes a meal. I, I just want to be sure about this. I don't think this is unbelief. This is, this is a massive deal, isn't it? He actually makes a pretty enormous meal, so it must have taken a bit of time. The Lord patiently waits there, sitting on his bench under the oak tree, waiting for Gideon to rustle up this gourmet dinner. And when Gideon returns, the Lord takes the initiative and tells him to put the soup and the bread and the meat on a rock. <laughs> and then the whole thing goes up in flames. And the table becomes an altar. I want you to get this. Gideon wanted to be reassured. Didn't he? Now, he's absolutely petrified, isn't he? In the first part, the people ask for relief. Oh God, help us. And God sends a sermon. 
Now Gideon says, please reassure me, God, that it's really you talking to me. And God basically scared the living daylights out of him. And he now knows, without any shadow of a doubt, that he has been talking with God face to face. I mentioned Del Ralph Davis earlier. In his commentary on Judges, he says this, that we Western Christians don't understand Gideon at this point. Uh, I quote, we, we long to reach our warm hand through the print of our Bible page, pat Gideon on the shoulder and soothe him and say, don't worry, Brother Gideon, God's really not like scary like that. If only you had the New Testament. Gideon would be like, did you just see what just happened? God seems pretty scary to me. Sometimes I think our problem can be that we have no real sense of just the awesomeness of God. We want God to be cosy and nice and intimate and pally. Here God sets the cafe on fire and then disappears. And what is amazing is that as Gideon is on the floor muttering to himself, please don't kill me, God speaks to him again and says, peace. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. I don't really need your food, Gideon, but I accept it anyway. Peace. Gideon's defeatism, his cynicism, his depression, his Gideon's emotional impoverishment is beginning to evaporate because he is getting a fresh sense of the awesomeness of God. He realizes that intimacy with this God is not some kind of European human right. It is actually a tremendous gift for this God to come near to him. And rather than eating him or squashing him or killing him, what he's actually doing is making peace with him and calling him to go and do something. When we reduce God to being like some, some kind of, I don't know, nice granddad figure, he wants to worship a God like that anyways. I have some serious concerns that one of the reasons that our churches in the UK are so empty is because we don't know this kind of God. We've made God look like Father Christmas. Who's frightened of him? Gideon here is moved from cynicism to confidence because he comes face to face with the living God. Oh man, I feel like we've, I've got 
another point to make. I've run out of time. I've, should we carry on? We've got one more point to make and we'll be briefer with this one. Are you still with me? It's going to really mess things up if I have to do this next week because then it makes next week even longer. Is Oh, we did that. Number three, moving from divided loyalty to single-minded devotion. Let's be quick here. We're going to read from verse 25, okay? That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's head, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it and then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this heart. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? Who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die. Because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal, or Baal, really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jeroboam, saying, let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. In verse 24, Gideon builds an altar, and he calls it, the Lord is peace. But there's a problem. There's already another altar in his backyard to the pagan gods, Baal and Astra. So the first job that Gideon has to do, Gideon has built an altar to the true God. Now he's got to tear one down that is designed to serve a false God. Before Gideon can go and fight the enemy outside, he has to deal with the enemy in his own backyard first. There's a clean-up job to do at home before he can go and fight against the Midianites. There are idols being worshipped in his own back garden. Maybe there are times when our own public usefulness is hampered by the secret idols we cherish in our own backyards. God calls him, I'm not going out to fight with you until that altar is destroyed. He's frightened, but obedient, and in the end his dad saves him by making the best argument ever made against false gods. He basically says, any god who can't look after himself isn't worth worshipping anyway. If Baal's god, he can look after himself. If you have to do his job for him, what kind of a ridiculous God is he anyway? So here's God, here's God moving 
Gideon and the people along again, this time from divided loyalties to single-minded devotion to God. It's hard to get our heads around this. We don't worship statues of Baal or dance around totem poles. This is 2015, for goodness sake. What has this all got to do with me? Well, maybe not so fast. These are God's people. How do they fall for it? How do they end up worshipping idols when they are God's people? I think they didn't want to be different to their neighbours, so they gradually tried to blend in. Some of them are second, third generation believers. What I mean by that is that they knew about God in their heads, but they didn't experience him in their hearts. They didn't set out to worship other gods. They didn't wake up one day and think, oh, God's rubbish, let's trade him in for another model. They gradually tried to combine worshipping the true God with worshipping lots of other pagan ones. I, I think we can do this as Christian believers. They fell for the idea that they could worship the true God for the big stuff. But then they had lives to live. You know, we can look after our day-to-day lives. We, we, I mean, we'll worship God for the big stuff, life and death things. But when it comes to, like, you know, having a good career and having lots of friends, there's ways of going about getting all those daily necessities. We'll worship God so we can get into heaven. That'll be good. But then we'll worship all these little gods so that our lives work. What, what, what they're doing is combining the two One writer says this, we're nearly done. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires. Political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle choices, entertainment programs. They all have one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time they appear amenable to us, manipulating them so that we can get what we want without losing our independence. This writer says, here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our hearts. God is calling Gideon and everyone else here and you and me to worship him alone. If you like, God is showing them that they only have one bottom and they can't ride two different bikes. That's a picture you won't forget. You can't worship God and something else. So, Where is God when you need him? He is right here. He has not changed. He is constantly at work seeking to move us from pointless regret to fruitful repentance, from cynical unbelief to confident faith, 
and from divided loyalties to single-minded devotion to him. The great good news of the Christian gospel is that there is a God who knows us, he knows what we're really like, and he's not abandoned us or left us. He hasn't left us to sort ourselves out before we can be qualified to come to him. When we do that, what we're really saying is, I can be my own saviour. Just give me time, I'll get myself back on track. The truth is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And the problems that we are often unwilling to bring to him are all known to him anyway. God loves the unrepentant, the cynical, and the divided. And in Jesus, his son, he sent us a greater deliverer than Gideon ever was in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, to save us, forgive us, enable us, and inspire us to be his people. Jesus is the real hero in the story, not Gideon. And I want to commend him to you this afternoon. Amen. Oh,